ultimately, if you want to start a company, if you want to become an investor, an operator, I think, you know, product is a great place to start because, you know, you're at the intersection of many different groups, technology, business, customers. So I think learning product more formally would probably be something that I would have done. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? Today on the podcast, I have somebody that I am so lucky to know because I don't think I would have a business if it wasn't for this person. She doesn't even realize that. But I have Jenny Fielding on, who is the founder, managing director, or co-founder of The Fund out of New York. But I know her from her days at Techstars. And we got coffee in Seattle. It was a lovely afternoon. And she's like, I like the podcast, but you need more women on it. Well, I was like, well, why don't you come on? So I'm so excited to have her. So Jenny... Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jim. And right back at you. You are such an incredible give first mentor in my Techstars programs and spoke to so many founders with no expectation of anything in return. So happy to you know to do anything you're involved in. Thank you. Yeah, for people, well, we'll get into it. But in New York, Jenny's probably mentored hundreds or thousands of startups and founders. And like your network is just insane. Like, how do you even remember names? Do you have like an, a Rolodex or do you just like say hi you a bunch? Like, how do you even do that? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I can't tell you what I ate for breakfast, but I don't forget founders' names and faces. It's this kind of weird thing. It's like what you're focused on in, in life. And so, you know, I feel like my life's work is supporting founders and I'm really focused on that. But like, yeah, don't don't ask me what I ate for breakfast or <laughs> where I'm going tonight. Those are things like I have no idea. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to get into all of it, but I'm so interested in like, I know you as Ginny, like investor, like in New York knows everybody. But before even going into like being an investor, like what did you do in college? What did you, what was your entrepreneurial journey before getting into VC? Yeah, it's actually a funny story because both my parents, although not tech entrepreneurs, they both work for themselves. And so the model growing up was really around, you know, ownership, right? And working for yourself and that that really allowed you flexibility and it allowed you to kind of, you know, charge your your own path and, and create your own destiny. But somehow I ended up in law school and then I ended up, you know, at a big bank, JP Morgan and big companies. And so it was funny that I fancied myself entrepreneurial, but my experience was was pretty like straight and narrow and corporate. Until, <laughs> until the day I had an idea. So in 2017, I had a personal pain point, which was, you know, making international calls on my mobile phone, which were quite expensive. So you might not remember, but back in the day, like if you called the UK or Germany from your mobile phone, it could be hundreds of dollars. So, you know, started working on this idea nights and weekends with some, some other folks that, that thought this was interesting. And yeah, like many entrepreneurs, you know, I call myself an empath founder in that I didn't like set out to start a company. I didn't set out to, you know, be an entrepreneur. I just set out to solve a problem that was personal to me. Right. And so I, I kind of gravitate to and love those empath founders that just see something wrong in the world and they need to figure out a way to fix it. They're not necessarily thinking about all the trappings or, or all the, the goods and bads of what it means to be an entrepreneur. 
So that was how it started. I was working full time, you know, at JP Morgan and nights and weekends. I was working with two people that became my co-founders on this concept, right? Which was really simple. It was about making less expensive international calls. And that kind of put me onto my real entrepreneurial path. But 2007, it wasn't a great time to be running a company in New York. There was no WeWork to work from. There was no venture capital dollars. And so everyone basically said, if you're going to start a company, you need to go out west. I looked around and I thought, hmm, that's an interesting that I have to go out west. Like, what do you need to be successful as an entrepreneur? Well, you need talent. And like New York had incredible engineering talent, business talent. You need capital. And even though we didn't have venture capital here, there was plenty of rich people in New York, Wall Street, real estate people. You need customers. So obviously you can sell to tons of people in New York. It's a big market. And partners, right? Corporate partners, every multinational is based here. So I looked around, stuck my you know feet down and said like, no, I'm going to run a company here. It's a great place. So it was hard. It was hard. You know, my community, Many of my friends were like, why would you, you know, leave a prominent job at a big bank to do this crazy thing called startup? You have to remember 2007 wasn't like today where there's a lot of cachet to running a startup and, you know, people think it's cool. Back then, people thought you were pretty crazy. But set up in my apartment, had some co-founders and away we went. That's awesome. What, like going to law school, what advantages did that give you as a founder? Because I feel like the language of business is accounting, it's numbers and it's words and it's legal, right? Did, did that like help you or are you like, oh, it, it, it didn't matter at all? Well, the funny thing about law school is that you don't actually learn anything in law school. You learn frameworks for thinking and being analytical. So I think law school is a great, you know, foundation for many professions that you have to kind of reason, you need to argue, you need to kind of put pieces together in something bigger. So I think it's helped me along the way, not just like, okay, yes, I can read a contract and negotiate a contract. But I think analytical frameworks of, of reasoning are something that I learned in law school through like traditional case studies. Zooming out to what I do now, which is venture capital, I have to, you know, have very little data, but use kind of multiple sources of data, essentially, whether it's on founders or markets or research to synthesize that all into a thesis of why I'm going to or not going to invest in a company. And I think the law school process of reasoning really helps. ROI is definitely there. You just justified it. Totally, totally makes sense. And we'll get into like how you come up with an investment thesis and having to say no to really smart founders. When you and I were talking, I was like, because I was doing some very light angel investing, I was like, that's the hardest part. Like, I, but yeah, that, that's a whole nother thing. <laughs> but going in like linear fashion, so you're like, you're, you're a first principles think you're like, I don't need to go to San Francisco. All of this is here. I'm going to stay in New York. You're now in an apartment with your co-founders. What, what's the story of this startup? Because like, I then see you at Techstars, like how long were you working on that? Did that, is that now called Google or like what, what was the, the end goal or the end game? Yeah. So like many entrepreneurs, the story of the startup was day highs and everyday lows, right? So, you know, at a, at a normal company, maybe you have a good week and a bad week or something, you know, good, a good month and a bad month. In startup world, all of that is like, you know, in dog years, it all happens like so quickly. So in one day you have your high highs, you know, you get this incredible customer, everything's going to be great. And then, you know, your low lows, like your money, get your, your capital gets pulled or something. So, so it was a rocky road and learned a ton of lessons. Ultimately, that company was acquired and it was a, it was a good exit, but obviously it did not become a billion dollar company, but there were a lot of lessons learned. And so I think when I finally 
you know, after I left the acquiring company and kind of finally got myself out of it and had some some headspace, I realized that I had a lot of scar tissue and things that I could share with other founders. And so I really like you, became a mentor. I, you know, would meet interesting founders. They would be struggling with some of the things that I struggled with. And it was just great to be able to, you know, potentially help them fast track not to make some of the dumb mistakes that that I made. And so just sharing, sharing those learnings. And so I did that. And that was where I actually ran into the folks at Techstars as I first became a mentor. I really loved that experience of, again, having no expectation of anything in return, but just being able to give feedback, hopefully, you know, provide some some guidance or some insights or at least some learnings that I had. And, you know, I'd, I'd heard that that was, you know, impactful to people who would come up to me founders later and be like, oh, that was so great what you said, this or that. And so that really encouraged me that kind of a mentoring model was what made a lot of sense. Now, I feel now the word mentor is is used, you know, pretty much everyone kind of uses that. But I have to say back in, you know, back in 2010 and, you know, that term was just a lot less used, I think, within the tech or startup ecosystem. And it was a little bit, you know, kind of newer. So it was cool to be, you know, part of, of that, that initiative. That's very cool. So you, you are able to land the plane. You have an exit. It sounds like it's not like you're buying mega yachts or FU money, but it's a nice exit. So you can like move to the next thing. But you were also mentoring at Techstars. So was that the next move? Like, did you immediately become MD at Techstars or how did you get to that role? Yeah, I actually had an interesting stint. I worked, I started a investment, well, I guess they called it innovation group at the BBC. So, you know, after I had sold my company, I ended up, you know, meeting some really kind of wonderful top people at the BBC. They wanted to, you know, start to think about like what were ways they were going to get ahead in, you know, the next kind of 10 years that were focused on digital. And one of the ideas was investing in companies. And so I ended up at the BBC for about four years. And what was so cool is that, you know, we basically just had a lot of experiments going. So we started a venture fund. We started an accelerator. We spun out a company that I was the CEO of. We just tried lots of different things to work essentially in the same goal, which was like, how do we find innovation and kind of bring it into the DNA of a very large, um, you know, company, which in the case of the BBC is also a quasi-government. So, you know, even more complex. And through that, I started something called BBC Labs, which was, I believe, the first corporate accelerator in Europe. You know, that turned out to be quite successful. And I really, you know, was excited by this idea. You know, first I started being a mentor and then I was like putting this program together. And I thought, you know, investing is cool, but if you can do investing plus surrounding founders with resources, like that's actually more impactful. And so once I kind of got a taste of that, Techstars made a lot of sense. I'd been getting to know the the team while I was at the BBC. And then when they asked me to come on as as an MD, I was excited to to make the move and really just focus on this kind of acceleration model. Man, that's an insane training ground. You essentially like you're you're so you learned to raise money to do the VC path. You essentially did the startup studio model if you're spinning something out, which is so freaking hard to do. But then you have the accelerator component where you're mentoring people. I'm actually selfishly interested in the spin out in the startup studio. Like, what did you learn from that? What do you like and not like about the startup studio model? Because I, I I see some pros and cons to it. I think all the things that you hear about were were true when we spun out a company and that was, 
you know, do internal people actually have the startup DNA? These are people that used to, you're used to getting nice paychecks. So I think that's, you know, problem one. Problem two is the company was already funded. And so, you know, do startups need to go through the, you know, the, the, the trials and tribulations of raising? So I'd say that was that was fun. Problem two. Problem three was like, you're spending a lot before you really know if there's product market fit, right? And so in all studios, you know, there's there's kind of a, a high OPEX. And so figuring that out before you're able to, to really test and iterate can be hard. So I think we made a lot of mistakes there. Ironically, ultimately, the BBC bought back the entity. So it was acquired by, by the entity, <laughs> which I think in big company, it sounds kind of crazy to us, but... I think with a lot of big companies that try to do this kind of internal incubation happens, right? Because they realize, oh, this actually is strategic to us. We should own the whole thing. <laughs> so complicated, but a lot, <laughs> a lot of learnings, a lot of learnings there. That's so interesting. And you talk about like these internal people, can they run it themselves? Because something I'm always trying to interview for is, is grit. And that's so hard to like put that on an interview questionnaire. Like, do you have grit? Give me an example of that, a time where you showed that, but you can really only see it when you're really in the trenches with people. When you can't make payroll, you really show grit. You know, like these are the things that were kind of hard to test for, but yeah, as an entrepreneur, I kind of went through all of them. Like you, you name the the crazy scenario. I went through it. Right. Yeah. It's like, what keeps you up at night? It's like, write that down and like, see if people have gone through that. That's like the, the, the grit test, I guess. So, so you go to Techstars. Well, can you just like define to people that they hear startup accelerator Techstars? So they're like, I think I know what that means. Like, how would you explain that to someone that's not as in the weeds? Yeah. So I'd say, you know, Techstars is primarily a three-month boot camp that helps early stage companies, you know, accelerate their companies to the next level, right? And so to do that, we surround them or Techstars surrounds them with, you know, cash, with mentors, with, you know, all types of corporate partnerships and resources to help them get, say, a year's worth of work done in three months. And so that's kind of the methodology. So instead of just investing and being like, peace out, you know, best of luck. It's really, you know, the founders move into our offices or really like immerse themselves in our ecosystem. We have wonderful people like you that are doing calls with them, strategy sessions with them, all in, you know, an effort to kind of move them along their path more quickly than they would be able to do themselves. So I'd say that's the, that's the methodology. And I was lucky at Techstars because at the time, they were doing a lot of corporate partnerships. And so that allowed me to learn about different verticals. So for instance, I spun up our fintech program with a corporate partner and tech stars. And so all of a sudden, I became, you know, deep in fintech. So that was really fun. I did our hard tech program, you know, so I was able to invest and mentor companies that were really like deep technology, which was, you know, pretty amazing. I did health and some some other ones. So yeah, it was a great experience, hopefully for the founders, but also for me, because I got to learn about, you know, these different verticals and develop, you know, a little bit of, of insight into them. But I think the real, you know, the real benefit of being an MD at Techstars for almost eight years was, and I was just saying this to, to an LP that was thinking about invest or that is thinking about investing in our fund. The real benefit was just the volume of data and information that you need to process, you know, and synthesize quickly. So, you know, Techstars New York, which I ran, probably got about 
1,500 applications for 10 spots, right? You can't be pouring over every application for hours and hours, right? You need to very quickly be able to see patterns, you know, triangulate information, be like, oh, there's 10 of these out there, like, can't do that. This is a great founder, you know, archetype. I think, you know, we can work with that. And so, yeah, that became my superpower of very quickly kind of getting down to the heart of the matter, whether it was the issue or whether it was, you know, the opportunity. I think that was really what I, I learned and refined over, you know, almost eight years. That kind of goes back to the law school as far as like synthesizing and making decisions. And one thing like you either like depending on the lens, like you have the coolest job or potentially the most stressful and hardest job, because one thing is you're getting exposed to so much like the reps you're getting in. It's like people couldn't get that in like four or five years and in another job. But it's also you have to like scan the world to find the next great thing, which is a huge undertaking because it's like, hey, how has have things changed for consumers or for this business? And how will technology impact that? And you're competing with a bunch of other people, if they're really good, you did an email newsletter a while ago that showed like the tour de Jenny of how you find these startups and all the conferences you went to and you've scored them. I think you stopped doing it because you're like, you know, you don't want to say bad things about some of the events, but it was a really cool update. I was like, oh, that's how she does it. But you, I mean, you are everywhere traveling, trying to like looking to find these startups. Yes, you have a lot of inbound, but like how much of it is like feet on the ground, talking to people, letting them know about tech stars and specifically about, about you? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, Techstars was a great platform for me to learn how to become a great zero to one investor, but also to develop, you know, connectivity with ecosystems around the world. And most of the MDs, you know, we're just in a different situation than me. And so, you know, they mostly focused on their geography and kind of knew everyone in town and whatnot. But I just thought, wow, like the world is my oyster. So I just got on a plane. And yeah, whether it was, uh, you know, m mentoring or judging a startup weekend in Guadalajara or going to Turkey to a startup event there, like I just went everywhere. And yeah, I have to say, you know, you know, after all those years, it really did pay off because, you know, I got to know communities, community leaders, entrepreneurs in so many different ecosystems, and they all stay in touch to a certain extent. And so, you know, the inbound really started started coming in. And you know how founder communities are. They're like these little flywheels. So if you invest in one or get in with one, all of a sudden you're going to get referrals, you know, from, from those. So I started, you know, pretty early investing in Africa. And, you know, once I made one investment in Nigeria, I kind of got in the WhatsApp groups of some of the, the Nigerian founders there, and then they were referring other people. And so I kind of became known as someone that always had lots of, you know, international companies in my cohorts, even if it was a New York cohort. And yeah, those have actually been some of my best companies. So it's, it's exciting to, to see. Feels scary at the beginning, like, okay, you know, you're investing in a geography where, you know, you don't know a lot of people. But, you know, it's all about these networks and fueling the networks. And then, yeah, you, you can really, you know, get some some interesting deal flow. That's so cool. I do believe in that flywheel. Like it really starts to compound in an exciting way. And I, I want to get into like advice for founders on how to like get your attention, like how you think about investing and even the current market. But before we do, like talk about the fun. Like it's super exciting because like Techstars was this amazing experience, but now it's like on to the next thing and doing it yourself. Like when was the genesis of that? And can you talk about like what, what the fund is? 
Yeah. So like, like my entrepreneurial at my first company I started where I had a full-time job, um, I was actually full-time at, talk, at Techstars when I started the fund. So, you know, there was an opportunity I saw in New York, which was, you know, great companies were going through my Techstars programs and they were struggling to get funding. And so they were running around town collecting 25K checks from angels. If you need to get to a million dollars, that's going to take you a long time. So I saw an interesting opportunity and, you know, me being me, I couldn't just sit still on it. I kind of started talking to some of my other founder friends and said, you know, what if we put together a fund? It would function kind of like an angel group and that deal flow and diligence and support of the portfolio would come from a larger group of, of founders. And but it would have all the great things of a venture fund, which means like I would pick the companies, there would be, you know, governance and we'd run it like a fund, not a consensus driven angel. So quickly was able to raise a few million dollars, all from founders and operators in New York City. And away we went. And so have, you know, have have a few co-founders on that. And yeah, we've been building ever since. So we started in New York with a very New York focused thesis, founders supporting founders in a New York ecosystem. Fun two, we ended up expanding that and seeing, hey, would this work in London? Would it work in Los Angeles? Would it work in Austin, Texas? Would it work in Australia? So we expanded our footprint. And yeah, that we've just been going since then. And our third fund now is fully global. And how big's the third fund? It is something I can't talk about. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll edit it out, but I'm pretty sure it's a billion. Okay, perfect. Yeah, there's like SEC regulations around that, so... Awesome. All right. Well, we will not get you in trouble. We will not go any further on that line of questioning. Um, but I can but, say, what I can say is that we have about 50 million um, under management across the funds. Wow. That's that's insane. How, how does that feel like the pressure of like managing other people's money? Like, how do you mm-hmm. handle that on like a day to day or week to week basis? I mean, it's something like you have such great experience at deploying capital and in choosing you know, company. So you've been in it for a while. Does it make it any different as it's your own thing? Yeah. And that's actually, you know, I see so many managers now and they just set up shop and then, you know, a lot of them call me and they're like, oh, wow, I'm going to be spending, you know, I thought this job was about investing, but it's actually about raising capital <laughs> and running a back office and, you know, all the fund management. So what was nice about having my starter funds while I was still at Techstars was that, you know, I could kind of learn in a, in a safe environment. I had a lot of people to ask questions to, and the funds were relatively small. And so now with, with a larger fund, I feel, you know, more prepared. And the truth is for an emerging manager who doesn't have, you know, much of a team, you know, we do a lot on a little. But to do that, you know, you have to understand that investing is part of your job. But the other is raising cash, it's supporting your portfolio, and of course, it's managing the fund, right? So, I mean, I need to pay taxes, I need to, you know, figure out what, you know, software stack we're going to use, and so all those things. And honestly, it's really, like, well-suited to my personality as, as a founder and a CEO, because I actually like operations, And so, you know, it's much more similar to running a startup, being an emerging manager than it is, you know, being an investor at, you know, a multi-billion dollar fund where you're just there to invest. So I like the diversity of it. For me, it's like more creative and, you know, you kind of get to do everything soup to nuts, which is very satisfying. To make it your own and do it the way you want to do it, which is probably energizing as well. If if I'm a founder and I'm like, okay, I want to 
get on the radar for the fun, not even like get investment from you. How can someone get in your inbox, your DMs or wherever, like to get your attention? Is it, is the best way through like a, a warm referral or what's the best way? Yeah. So what's cool about our, you know, our community is that we have 500 founders and operators that are all part of the funds. So these are RLPs who are founders and these are our portfolio companies. And so really, wherever you are, you should be able to find someone from the fund to connect with, whether it's one of our venture partners, one of our LPs, you know, one of our portfolio companies. And that's really, you know, honestly, the best way, because our top of the funnel all comes from that community of 500 founders and operators. And so that's that's a great way. I'm also, you know, always open to, you know, taking inbound and, you know, I encourage people to reach out as long as it's, you know, a thoughtful email that is relevant, you know, to me. So we're pre-seed fund, which means that we, what we define it as rounds that are about 500K to 2 million. So if you're raising, you know, I get these emails all the time. Jenny, I did some research on you and we're raising $5 million. I know you'd be perfect. It's like, well, you didn't do <laughs> Right. So the rounds we do are 500K to 2 million. They're in pre-seed companies. Valuations are 10 million or less. And we invest primarily across three verticals, money, health, and work. And so if you fall, which are pretty broad. So if you fall into that category, we want to hear from you wherever you are in the world. And yeah, that's exciting. I mean, that does narrow it down quite a bit. So Gotcha. Yeah. So it's like, first, do your homework to know you fall within that window, like under 10 million and everything. Fall in those categories, tech enabled. But then what what else is it? Because you probably get this question a lot. I'm sure it tech stars a million times. Like, what's that perfect pitch where you're like, okay, you have my attention and I'm like very excited? Yeah, I think the last few years as, as you know, entrepreneurship and, you know, technology and startups have proliferated, which we think is great. Differentiating yourself in terms of product, I think, is harder, right? And so many times I get pitches and I'm like, oh, that's kind of like this, but like slightly different. So there's a lot of derivative products out there. And I think those are harder for investors like us because we've invested in so many things already. We have 200 portfolio companies. And so we're really looking for fresh ideas across those categories. And so I think, you know, when you're pitching any investor, really talking about differentiation, you probably don't have a lot of metrics because you're a pre-seed founder. So it's probably about you, the unique insight that you have on a market or a product or where the world is going, and then differentiation. I think those are the two things that really, you know, catch an investor, any investor's attention. Very cool. And are you proactively looking at either markets, like verticals? It sounds like you're very proactive in like geography, like with what you're doing in Africa to, to, to find these opportunities. Are there things that you're like, I wish this would exist. I wish I'd get a cold email tomorrow for XYZ. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like we don't do any outbound, like we're pretty different from most investors. Our thesis is it's inbound from our community of 500 founders and operators. And if we choose those people, well, they'll be seeing the most interesting things that are out there. So not super thesis driven in terms of that. But I will say we looked across our first fund, which was, you know, more generalist. And we said, okay, where are the outliers coming from? And in our own numbers, they, you know, the outliers were really coming from these three verticals, money, health and work. And so and again, you know, money, that is big. It can be anything from, you know, fintech to Web3 to, you know, commerce tools, right? Health, that can be digital health, but it could also be, you know, deeper health, right? Deep integrations with EMR systems, things of that nature and work. 
like think of, you know, new modalities of work, but then productivity, automation. So they're very broad categories. And yeah, that's kind of what we are focused on now, but we don't do outbound. Yeah, those are still really good categories. And so one thing you were talking about before we hit record is, you know, right now we're recording this. It's October 2022. You know, the, the market's definitely in, in a downturn. I mean, me personally, I'm actually worried about Q1 of next year because naturally with our business, Q1 can slow down. And I, I assume you're probably getting founders coming to you like, hey, how should they approach running a business as they're looking at, you know, a, a, a potential slowdown? And there's probably two ways to you're answering that one is, approach it from a fundraising perspective, how to handle that, but also how to operate a business. Cause you know, part of me is like, I'm going to play offense right now where I can to add value and take market share. But then I'm also conservative, like let's minimize our spend, lower our burn rate. But I don't know, like any, anything that you're seeing or feeling as you're talking to founders as they're, they're asking for that advice. I think when you're going out fresh, you know, raising 24 months of cash, which just seems like a crazy amount because you have to do it at a relatively low valuation. But really, you know, the last few years, founders have been raising nine months of cash. And so I think now if you're thinking 18 to 24 months, you're in a good in good shape. So 500K is probably not going to last you. So many of the founders that were, you know, raising very small rounds, we've said, hey, have you thought about taking in a little bit more cash? understand it's more dilution, but I think that will extend your runway and, you know, all factors are leading towards a very choppy, you know, 2023. And so you want to make sure that not only do you get through 2023, but that you're not out of cash at the end of it, right? So that you can go into 2024. So we are talking about 18 to 24 months. So I think, you know, that's, that's thing one. Thing two is that, you know, historically, if you talked about, you know, break even with an investor, their eyes glazed over and, you know, you lost the meeting because, you know, they didn't want profitable companies. They wanted high growth companies. And I think the narrative has really shifted there where investors want to talk about, you know, how you can get to where you are sustainable, not that you need to be there and not that you want to run a small business, but how can you still have growth, but you know, have more control. And so if you have that control, you won't get caught in this kind of funding gap, right? I mean, if you're running, you know, at, at break, break even, that gives you a lot of leverage in terms of when you raise, when you don't raise. If you're just burning venture capital, you know, you're kind of on borrowed time. So, so I think that's a positive for founders that are scrappy, that, you know, want to run profitable businesses that doesn't, everything doesn't have to be like, oh, you know, we're growing 70% month over month and we're burning all this cash. I think now people are pretty happy if you're, you know, growing, you know, moderately and you've got like, you know, sensible projections that really leave you spending less venture capital and, you know, really focused on customers and, and customer dollars. It's like you're making a product people want. The metrics show that, but you're not just like growing at all costs. It's like that could be a little dangerous. Right. So maybe you don't need to go into that new geography or that new country or whatnot as quickly. Maybe you can make sure the business model works, has sound unit economics, et cetera, before you expand. And I think for the last few years, it's been just like go, 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 growth at any cost. And there was always cash to fuel if you got stuck, right? And now that cash is gone. You can't you can't rely on it. If it is there, that's great. But I don't think you can count on it being there. So it's a real kind of mindset shift for the entrepreneur. Now, ultimately, I mean, 
it's scary being an entrepreneur now. It's scary being a fund manager now. So I'm not saying like these are the good days and like I'm excited about it. But ultimately, I think a reset from 2020 and 2021 is actually healthy. Things had gotten so inflated. Multiples were so crazy. It really wasn't healthy for anyone. It wasn't healthy for the entrepreneurs and it wasn't healthy for the investors. So I think, you know, going back to a new normal, which is maybe the old normal, is actually healthy, although it is painful for everyone. I mean, it's painful for me in raising a fund. You know, I have the same problems as entrepreneurs, whereas everyone would have funded me in 2021. You know, now if you're raising now as a fund manager, it's much harder. So I have the same problems as as founders do. We're on the same side of the table. But ultimately, I think it was the medicine the industry needed to take. Right. Yeah. With everything going as crazy as it was, you're right. It is hard to swallow, but it's 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 necessary. Yeah. For me, it's I'm really just thinking through like weathering the storm and like being in an offensive position as, as it turns. But um, yeah, my, I like the example you said, like sometimes founders live in dog years. So like there can be a lot of emotions throughout a day or a week that I uh, get, get, get accentuated. Sure. Yeah, for sure. Sure. So you you teach at Columbia in addition to the million other things that you do. Wait, wait, what's the class called that you teach now? Yeah, so I helped to start a class about six years ago. It's called Venturing to Change the World. And really why I got involved was, you know, I was an undergrad at Columbia and, you know, I was marched off to law school and many of my, you know, my friends were marched off to BCG and McKinsey and, and Goldman and we didn't even know that there were other options for us, right? If we weren't, you know, engineers and, and the like. And so fast forward all these years and you'd think, you know, with everything going on that that would really change, have changed, but it actually hadn't. And so, you know, I was one of the alum kind of stomping my foot like, this is crazy. Like we need to expose, you know, these kids to other, you know, other areas of entrepreneurship. And so, yeah, this class was started to really do that, to be the first class offered to undergrads. There's lots of great entrepreneurial classes from the business school, but for undergrads to have exposure to entrepreneurship and everything that that can unlock in the world. So yeah, the class has been running for six, seven years and it's really awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, I was a finance major. I literally thought there was like two, three jobs I could get out of school. It was like investment banking or like try and go private equity. And so I did investment banking. And then you get into the workforce like, oh, wow, there's actually a million things you could do. I wish someone would have told me. Um, Wait, I mean, where we both ended up. So yeah, I mean, I even go to my law school reunions and they're like, huh, fascinating. Didn't see you as, you know, running a venture fund. And you know, so you don't know where life's going to take you. But but yeah, it's great to have the exposure at least. And so, you know, no one told me this was an option when I was an undergrad. And it's really cool. So the the students in my class, you know, they always come up to me after like the first or second class. I'm like, wow, I was thinking about go working at Goldman Sachs. But, you know, maybe I want to come work for you or maybe I want to go, you know, work at a startup. And like that to me is why I do this. Not that they shouldn't go ultimately work at Goldman, but they should know they have options and they should experiment and try things out. You know, when you're you're 20 years old, you have a lot of optionality and, and you should really figure out where your passion is. Because now at my age, you know, my friends kind of are divided into the ones that really found their life's work like me. And I feel grateful every day. And the ones that are kind of slogging it out, you know, doing stuff that maybe they make a lot of money, but they're not super happy. Right. And so, you know, the big lesson for me is like, you have to find your passion and you probably as a 20 year old don't know that. And you're going to set your course early. So, you know, experiment, go work at Google for a summer or, or something like that. Even if you are sure that you want to go work in Goldman Sachs, at least expose yourself. 
Yeah, especially as you get older, you get those golden handcuffs. You could have a family, have a mortgage, and it gets harder and harder to, to break away. I, I, so you've been teaching for a while now. I want to know, like, what advice would you give to other people that are teaching? Because clearly the class is going well. People are coming up to you afterwards. They're not working at Goldman. They're starting startups. Hopefully those do well. Like, what's your teaching style? Like, what advice would you give? Because I do, like, some teaching and, like, marketing workshops. And I'm always, like, thinking through how do I get people's attention? How do I resonate? Or are you just like, I'm just me and it works? Well, I mean, we run the class like a business school class, meaning that it's collaborative and and the students work in teams, which they're actually not used to. And so I always have to remind them, you know, when you graduate, you will work at a company and you will work on a team. And it's hard working on teams. There's a lot of personalities. You're going to feel like you're working harder than this other person, but you're going to be kind of judged in a group. And So, you know, at many schools like Columbia, they don't have a lot of opportunity to work collaboratively. So the advice I give other teachers is like, have them work in group projects. It's super awkward for them. And most of them don't like it. But it's like, these are the life skills that I didn't have. And I'm speaking from experience, right? So it's like, I graduated. And then, you know, when I had my first job, I was like, oh my gosh, I've always been like sitting in a cubicle by myself with my head down doing my work. Unfortunately, that's not how the world is, right? And so, you know, and now, you know, like I'm someone that's all about bringing people together. That's about networks and working with people. But I didn't learn any of that, you know, in school, right? And going to like some of the best schools, you know, in the world. And so I think that's a real gap in education is like we don't get practical skills because it gets deemed like vocational. We have to like encourage young people early that like this is actually what the workplace is like. (laughs) So so I try to give them that experience, which, again, they get grumpy about. The other thing I do is. (laughs) It's like call on students, you know, it's a discussion class. And so, you know, I want to hear from different people. And so I call on them, which they do in law school and I think in business school, but they are very uncomfortable with that and do not like it and like hide from me. And like, I mean, again, like you, you know, you have to be part of part of the group. Like you can't go to a meeting, you know, at a company and just like hide under the table. Right. Because like you don't want to answer that question. So I try to give them a taste of reality while also, you know, making it fun and hopefully interesting. <laughs> that's, my that's, that's so good. So they're terrified of you because you call on them. I love it. But it's true. Like you're in a meeting. It's like, hey, Jim, Jane, what do you think about that? You've got to be like ready yeah. to be Johnny on the spot or whatever. But uh, that's such yeah. a good point. Like learning's all single player mode, but the workforce, you're talking to people like, man, it's so true. Like everything you learn in school, you're like undoing. If you don't like, you know, someone on your team, you can't like, you know, call their boss and be like, I don't like, I mean, you got to learn how to get along. You got to learn how to make it work. And, you know, so yeah, so I I think it's good, good life skills early on. But mostly I hope that the class is just inspiring them to, you know, think differently about, you know, about the world and, you know, the impact that you can have by venture creation, by business creation, right? Which I think is is kind of like the theme of your your podcast. And so I, I wish that earlier on, I'd really thought about impact and how, you know, starting companies can really impact the world in a big way. So that's what I encourage them to think about. Yeah, that's very cool. So if you were like starting all over today, wanting to go down your same path, what would your entry point be? Would it probably be, or not probably, I don't want to lead the witness here, but like, would it be going down the entrepreneurial path to get that foundation or like go another path to, to get the reps that you're getting? Like, what, what would you do? 
Yeah, I mean, I think law school was a good foundation, but quite honestly, if I was starting again, you know, I ended up, you know, building a company and became more of a product person before I was investing. And so I'd probably go work at a company. I mean, again, back in the day, there there wasn't a lot of like PM roles available when I was graduating college. But, you know, I think now to be able to work on a product, ultimately, if you want to start a company, if you want to become an investor, an operator, I think, you know, product's a great place to, to start because, you know, you're at the intersection of, you know, many different groups, technology, business, customers. It's very intuitive. You have to work with many groups. So I think, you know, learning product more formally would probably be something that I would have done. Yeah, because that's kind of the core of everything. Once you understand that, that's super exciting. And and one question I always like to ask everybody is, what's the nicest thing anyone's done for you in your professional career? I mean, there have been a lot of people that have you know taken taken a bet on me. And so you know, when I came into the investing world, like I'd been a founder, but I didn't have you know investing experience. And so you know, I think I've just had you know people that have seen potential and have said, sure, you don't have that skill. You've never written a check before, but you can learn to, you know, to do this. And so I've had a few people at different points in my career really kind of take me under their wing and say like, you know, we're going to give you a shot because like we see this potential there. Yeah, it's pretty cool, especially at that like inflection point when you're like going down this path. It's like those p- people early on kind of make all the difference. That, that's super cool. Yeah, with no experience, right? So I had experience as a founder, but I didn't have experience as an investor. And so stitching those things together, although maybe that seems more obvious today, you know, when I started was less obvious. And so I think, you know, just taking a chance that, okay, here's someone, you know, that comes from the entrepreneurial world, has a good frame on that, will be able to learn the investing side. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Jenny, if people want to learn more about you or the fund, where should they go? Yeah, um, you know, a a nice Twitter following so they can always follow me there. I'm pretty active on on LinkedIn. And yeah, they can email me directly if they're a pre-seed company that kind of fits our criteria. Happy to to hear from them. Yes, you actually had a really funny... I think it was a LinkedIn post. It was you and another person. It literally looks like you're a stand-up comedian up there. I always see you on stages and conferences all over the world. So it's like, where's Jenny today? But it's it's, well, it's a good follow. Funny. What was funny about that is I was actually interviewing someone for my Kaufman Fellowship, and we're we're both investors, and we showed up essentially in the same outfit, although he's a guy. And so we're on stage, and I was like, you know, talking to this group of investors, and I was like, okay, here's the, the first thing you need to know about you know being an investor in New York: you have to dress the same. So I made him stand up, and everyone was laughing. So there oh, we that's go. That's awesome. That's pretty cool. Well, Jenny, again, I can't thank you enough one for coming on the podcast, but two, you've been so awesome over the years. Even when I wrote my book, I was like, Jenny, will you please? Leave me a quote. Do you mind? You're like, of course. You've been so like helpful. So re- really thankful for that. So I appreciate it. Excited about the podcast. <laughs> cool. Thank you, Jenny. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money. But I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. Growth Hit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, 
Growthit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out growthhit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman.